In today's episode, we have Dr. Warwick Garko. Dr. Garko is the Senior Director of Operational Analytics at the Australian Taxation Office. As part of his career working in federal government agencies like Medicare Australia, he built artificial neural network and multivariate statistical model to help identifying fraud and abuse within the Medicare and pharmaceutical benefit scheme. During his career, he has also worked in Defence Department of Australia in the area called Decision Support. Over the years, he has also published a number of papers and books involving the topics such as defense strategy and analytics. Apart from that, he is currently the convener of the Whole of Government Data Analytics Center of Excellence and a special acquisition group of the Smarter Data Program of the ATO. His current interests revolve around knowledge acquisition, unsupervised learning, and how to subspace population and do digital profiling. Warwick, welcome to the Analytics Source, and thank you for being part of this to share your knowledge and experience. I have done a lot of research about you, and I'm really excited to hear what you are about to share with us in terms of how analytics are in applied in federal government for policymaking and making Australia an advanced knowledge-based country. I thought I would start it light, which is with books, and you are no stranger to books. You have published quite a lot of papers and books. So among of them, do you have a favorite? And why is that particular one? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, probably uh, yeah, the work I've done in identifying class structure has probably been the ones that have probably given me the, the biggest um, sense of satisfaction. But there's been a number of those done at various times over the years, and I couldn't really single out one. What is this class structure that you were referring to? Do you like to elaborate that a little bit? Yeah, one of the, um, you know, there's different categories of, of um, objects and issues, etc., in the world. And the simplest example I always use to explain class structure is fruit. And you've got apples, oranges and pears, bananas, if you want to toss them in as well. And they're all different classes of fruit. And each of them has a number of distinguishing characteristics which you don't have to explain because most people know what those characteristics are that discriminate samples from oranges, from pears. And what I've been focused on has been how you know methods you can use to identify the, the distinguishing characteristics of different classes in the population. An example would be, say, um, different types of customers or classes of customers out there and what these techniques do is identify what are those discriminating characteristics of those different, say, types of customers in the population. And they, where class methods differ from traditional clustering methods is that put like with like when it comes to the profiles or the, the scores that you know cases obtain in a data set, in other words, what I'm saying, rows that have similar scores are placed in the same collection or cluster. Yep. What class methods do is, uh, they're called taxonic methods, if you want another name for it, is identify the variables that define a category or class in a population. And you know, to give you uh, an example, there's different classes of medical practitioner out there, particularly those who are GPs. And a lot of these can be identified without the need to use data mining methods to do it. But um, if you don't have prior knowledge of what those classes are, 
uh, which you don't know from knowledge and experience what they are, you can use these techniques to identify different classes of GP and I can give you examples of where I'm coming from because this is work that I did a long time ago. You know, there's GPs out there that focus on what's called female health and mm-hmm. they, tend to, they tend to be female practitioners who deal with female patients for female problems and they have a very, you know, what do you call it, distinct um, set of attributes that define them. Another is geriatric specialists, you know, people who, that is practitioners who focus on the older population. Another is sports medicine providers who focus obviously on sports injuries that, you know, sportsmen and women get. And GPs, even though there are still a lot out there that are very much family practitioners, you know, in the sense that they cater for all, all different types of patients, there are uh, increasingly GPs who are just because of choice and probably because of the type of market they're in have uh, chosen to focus on particular niche type patients and hence you know they've got clientele that have very um, specific type problems and that's what they've specialised in so within generalists there are specialists uh, just as there are specialists within specialists and by that I mean if you take um, say ophthalmology as an example within ophthalmology there are different types of ophthalmologists who specialise in different aspects of uh, disease and you know, disabilities with the eyes and these specialists are called hyperspecialists and so um, they do this because you know they again they prefer to focus on particular issues with the eye and provide a, a niche sort of service to patients and what normally happens within those specialists is that if an ophthalmologist is treating a patient and they know there is a particular ophthalmologist who's best suited to treat that patient then they'll often refer that patient to that particular specialist because they'll know they'll get the best form of treatment to uh, hopefully cure whatever the problem may be with that patient. Mm-hmm. And so the same is happening in the generalist world as well. Medical practitioners now are choosing more, or not, like I said, I don't want to emphasise all, uh, to specialise in a particular area because, you know, they get a great deal of job satisfaction from what they're doing and also that it enables them to keep up to date with what goes on in that particular niche type of area they operate and also, you know, they become known for being people you would go to if you had particular, you know, issues. So that's what's going on in the broader health area. But, you know, we can identify those people provided we've got the right data and provided we're using the right techniques just by the, their defining attributes in terms of the types of patients they see, the type of services they provide, the type of procedures they perform. So there are statistical techniques out there, and I won't go into them because they're a bit hard to explain technically, uh, that you can use to identify those defining attributes. Yep, yep. And uh, from I remember you spent quite a bit of time in the healthcare industry, and particularly in the Medicare Australia. So I think one of the views that you and I both share is that the... I'm going to jump around a little bit with my question. So... I want to jump to this question in terms of the domain expertise. So that is the view that you and I share 
that domain expertise is really important. And uh, it is about combining the domain expertise, understanding of the system data, and the analytic to solve the problem with elegant solutions. However, at the same time, the other side of the token is that it's equally dangerous, in my view, that to put the domain experience as the most important requirement when searching for the right people to get on board in delivering a solution. So my question for you is, how should one take a good balance in hiring an analytic professional or how one should take a good balance in getting the right people in terms of their domain expertise skill set and problem solving skill without overemphasizing the domain expertise while equally recognizing its importance in the role? Yeah, that's a very good question. It's true that you know you shouldn't put domain expertise against ahead of technical expertise because you're not going to get the person you want if you do that, and I totally agree with that uh, view. But I will quote a um, person I heard many, and it wasn't all that many years ago, but it's going back at least five, possibly more years, and he was a sort of like a chief data scientist at a, at a firm in the USA, and it wasn't a major one, but it was still a, a sizable. Uh, organization but he he emphasized he said it was increasingly important now that data scientists uh, focus on getting domain knowledge because without it they're probably not going to function as well as they could because you've got to be familiar with the issues that go on in that domain that you're working and health is one domain say finance another agriculture is a third so so I define what I mean by domain and it's knowledge that you just can't, within five minutes, gain just by, say, reading books and, and articles and even talking to people. It really takes a bit of time to get on top of what are the key issues in that particular domain and, and, and to come and to understand and appreciate how mm. the people you speak to are, who are business experts as distinct from technical experts by that I mean, they may be technical in their training, but they're talking about the knowledge in their particular area where they operate and why it is they make certain decisions and why it is they may go down a particular path with a particular issue, why they see certain things in the data that you you and I would never see because we just don't have their knowledge. And so... Having a, you don't have to be uh, have a deep knowledge of the domain, but you've got to have a, a reasonable knowledge of it to appreciate what people are telling you, why it's important, so that you under, you can see it from their eyes rather than your own eyes what the issues are. So that's the reason I emphasise the importance of domain knowledge. But coming back to what you said, what's important technically, you know, you're going to get different answers from different people depending on who you talk to because. What I've found from listening to many people is each individual, especially those who've got a lot of so experience under their belt, tend to emphasise things that they see as important, but others may not. And hence, you're not necessarily going to get a you may, you'll get a partial consensus, but I'm fairly certain you won't get a full consensus across the board, across all say um, highly experienced practitioners about what they collectively sees being the most important thing and then the second most important thing and and so on. But I personally have always favoured their 
knowledge of machine learning and statistics as being the most important attribute or requirement because I really believe that's why we are employed. You hear often you've got to be able to program, you've got to be able to mm. do data processing, you've got to be able to have good business skills in selling what you do. And I don't dispute for a minute that all those things aren't important. They certainly are. But ultimately it comes down to picking the right solution to solve the problem. And to me, you know, if, if you don't have the machine learning statistical, say, experience and expertise... I just really don't believe you are going to be able to contribute much. You may be a brilliant programmer and, and that can be utmost in value in terms of achieving an outcome, but that's a means to an end. It's not um, uh, providing what's required to uh, actually get to the end. It's just enabling you to get to the end. And to me, you can always hire good programmers. You can always hire good data analysts. You can always hire people who've got the um, skills at selling whatever it is that's being done, even though uh, those people aren't a dime a dozen, they tend to be uh, hard to find. But there are other skill sets out there that can help you to uh, to make you know cover the uh, deficiencies or shortfalls that you may have in the skills that you are you have available to do what it is that's got to be done. And by that I mean if you take um, selling what you do. Uh, there are data journalists out there now and data um, artists who can really convert what's a lot of technical speak to business speak and make it very um, saleable, very digestible and very much able to get across clearly to management what's being done, why it's important and, and why they should commit to it. It's very it's advantageous if the data scientists can do that but not all data scientists are gifted in that way. Uh, so, um, yeah, I don't want to go on because I'll be going, going around in circles, but to me, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's machine learning or, and statistical expertise. I, I really believe that's what, that's what we're paid to do. You know, if we've got that, yep. then we've, we've got what counts. Yeah, I agree. Um, now, on, can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you are currently doing at the ATO and what business problem you are solving using the data and analytics? Okay, what I'll do is first is give you a, sort of like a top-level view mm. of what we do, and there's no trade secrets here. We don't um, a lot. What I'm going to describe is already in the public domain. I'm not saying anything that's confidential or secret or it's going to compromise what we're doing. But the government uh, funds us. Uh, in two ways um, and this is oversimplifying it but I'd rather keep it simple rather than make it make it uh, complicated they fund us to do what's called task force work which I'll describe in a minute and they fund us to do more business as usual work and business as usual work is um, is what we have been doing for a long time and continue to do and whereas the task force work is more specific to what the government wants attention focused on and which they'll fund us for a specific period of time to do. Sometimes they'll extend that period of time because they believe there's um, value in doing that. Other times, you know, once you reach that life expectancy date that's specified, then the funding ceases. But it varies from, from task force to task force, case to case. It just depends on what the issues are. But to give you examples of the task force work, there's the Black Economy Task Force, that's been put together to 
to develop solutions and to tackle the black economy. There's the, um, I think it's called the High Crimes Task Force. It's focused on um, people who have got money in tax havens offshore and haven't declared, declared as income. I'm talking about what's called the Paradise of Paladin type papers that were in the media some time ago. You don't hear about it so much, but that work still continues. There's the um, Tax Avoidance Task Force, which is more to do with um, the big end of town and uh, the fact that it's perceived that they may not be paying their fair share of tax. And there's a task force that is quite a large one that's been put together and it's been in operation for a number of years to tackle that particular issue. And the fourth one, to my knowledge, is, and I have no idea what they're doing, but it's the superannuation one, where I think it's probably focused on ensuring that employers pay employers their right amount of superannuation. That's my surmising. I'm not... I don't know, you know, in terms of fine de- detail what it's doing. So that is those task forces, and we have these task forces are multidisciplinary, and by that I mean it, it's people who c- have come from different sort of backgrounds who are involved in these task forces. Uh, a lot come from the business side of the ATO, but some come from the, uh, the data science side, the analytics side of the ATO, and each of those individuals who are involved bring certain skills to the table, certain you know, knowledge and experience as well, and between them, that is collectively within those teams, they come up with um, answers to whatever the issues are that they've been given to address. Coming back to business as usual, that's more like uh, stuff that we do on a day-to-day basis, and this may surprise you, it's not all to do with compliance, it uh, has in the past been to do with um, some compliance issues like, you know, lodgement, mm. paying, you know, making the right sort of claims for, say, work-related expenses or yep. for investment, prop- uh, sorry, for rental properties or for investments. But the, um, you know, some of the work's been on just what's called business process improvement, looking at yep. how we function. Is there ways and means that we can do things better and more efficiently than what we have done in the past where we're, you know, we're basically um, achieving savings from improving the way the business is done. Uh, those savings aren't necessarily aimed at returning money to, um, to revenue or to, you know, to federal treasury. It enables us to free up staff instead of doing routine stuff, you know, stuff that's fairly repetitive and probably not got a great deal of, um, uh, what do you call it, job satisfaction with it, we can redirect them to doing more challenging work, work that, yes. is, that is more difficult, more complex, but requires a human to do it. We can't get a machine to do it. And therefore, you know, we're getting better productivity out of them. Uh, they're getting more job satisfaction and and we're also um, contributing more uh, to the public purse, uh, which is, you know, what governments... Uh, speak from all departments and agencies. Uh, so that's an, an example of where we've been focused. Um, you know, if you take my own area, you know, where we've been focused historically, uh, I'm not certain this will continue in the future, is that we've been f- more focused on understanding the customer, who they are, what they do, um, what issues they may have, 
again, not necessarily from a compliance perspective, but just more understanding more or better who's in Australian population, what are their, you know, where do they live, what do they, like I said, what do they do, do they have particular issues that are different, say, from other types of people that live in the Australian population. So getting that customer insight, you know, the customer analytics sort of focus. We're always seen to be a regulatory agency, but the point I'm trying to make is that not everything we do is regulatory in focus. A percentage of it is, but not all of it. Yeah, I, I think especially the highlight of the high crime where the people hiding their money in the tax haven for the black economy and also the tax avoidance task force. I, I thought that's really, really interesting. I, I suppose from the public perspective, like a lot of people like us probably wouldn't know about this sort of thing exists in the way that uh, where it will play a role in uh, trying to solve this problem. So that that is really some great work that the ATO is is doing, and likewise the customer insight and the customer analytics. I I, I just think that that is probably one type of the analytic that pretty much ninety five percent or my uh, all the business will always be involved because every single business or company or organization will always have customer, and from the government perspective or the ATO perspective, it is no different. The customer is the people who is uh, paying the tax and uh, perhaps the accountant who are helping these people to, to, to pay the tax. So it's important to understand the population and uh, the issue that they face, et cetera, in terms of the, from the customer analytic perspective in uh, driving a better, what I call the revenue collection. That's right. That's, you know, and it's also, you know, because all governments, regardless whether they be state, federal or local, you know, they're all under considerable pressure with their budgets and, you know, anything that they can do to increase revenue they're interested in, provided, of course, it's not going to create other unintended consequences for them. So, um, yeah, you know, I mean, we play a major role for the federal government. You know, 90% of the revenue that's collected at federal is, is done by the ATO. Uh, there are other agencies and that collect revenue for government as well, but they're, they do it on a minor scale compared to what we do. Do you think that if we were able to move into a cashless society or economy, that a lot of the problem that you described earlier may be able to go away and uh, the government will be in a much better position in uh, collecting the revenue because as everything goes into cashless, it pretty much it will always leave a digital footprint. And of course, there are people who will be smart enough to figure out how to wipe out those digital footprints or, or fabricate some of those digital footprints. But I feel like it could be a massive step forward and improvement should we be able to go into the cashless society. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I've um, I sort of, you know, going back historically, it's, I'm, you know, I'm not involved now, but historically uh, at one stage, if you go back, say, 10 years ago, you know, one of the questions that was on the tip of everyone's tongue was how big is the black economy? And I'm talking not only here in Australia, but across the board, globally in various other jurisdictions like the United States, the United Kingdom, and even places like China, you know, just to pluck another example out of the air. And, you know, you heard various um, estimates being quoted, depending on which country you referred to, but... No one knew for sure what the size of the black economy is in those various jurisdictions with some 
one or two exceptions, like the United States carries out each year a random sample of a very small percentage of the population, and it's probably a, a fraction of a percent rather than a few percent, and to confirm what they believe is the size of the black economy, and they've been very, um, what do you call it, uh, uh, trying to think of the right word, but very focused on this and very vigilant about doing it as well because they they have an issue that we don't face here in Australia, that they are funded each year by Congress and Congress basically funds them on the basis of uh, how much revenue they believe they can collect each year and and so it's always been in the IRS that is the, I think it's called the Inland Revenue Service, I might be wrong on the internal revenue service, sorry, in the United States, you know, they've, they've gone out of the way to ensure that they can quote year to year what they believe the size of the black economy is and for that very reason I've just described. But if you come to Australia and, you know, I have no idea how big the black economy is. I know the tax office has done some sampling to try and establish the size of it, but just off the top of my head, I can't remember what figure they came to, but there's been... Uh, much discussion, you know, historically, what the size of the economy is, and what struck me is just how different different experts vary and what they believe the size of this economy is. But one way for sure would be um, doing what you just described. I've always believed if we move from a cash to a cashless society, you're right in what you said about how people could avoid or evade being detected, but. The um, thing is, I, I honestly believe we'd get a much better understanding of how much uh, the black economy was costing the uh, the Australian government if we were to move to a cashless um, society. You're right that uh, every electronic transaction leaves a footprint, a series of footprints leaves a trail. Those trails can be detected using modern technology. It would make it very hard for people to... Um, or much harder to hide or disguise those transactions because there's other ways and means of working out what a person should be earning uh, besides what's reported and what's detected. And therefore, you know, it would put the government in a much better uh, place to achieve an increase in revenue from all that money that's not currently declared as in the because of the black economy. So I tend to uh, be a strong advocate of going to a cashless society because of the reasons uh, that you highlight and the ones I've tried to highlight it. I really believe it will um, overcome that problem. It could create others that we currently mm. don't have, but mm. it's, it certainly, I think, would help nip in the bud the black economy. I, I think that it could be, it will be ideal like if we will be able to move into this cashless society I suppose the key question that I will be asking is how far are we away from moving into the cashless society? And often, I don't think it is fair to compare Australia to China in terms of the pace of moving into a cashless society. Obviously, the China is, is at the forefront with the mobile payment, etc. But one of the analogy or one of the arguments that uh, often I have read why China and how China has been so advanced is because they almost keep the entire generation and the infrastructure of the credit card and the credit card payment. They pretty much keep that. And because of that, it is much easier for them to move from the cash straight away into the cashless society using the mobile 
payment. So while it is not quite fair to compare to China, but I think for memory, Sweden or Switzerland, I cannot remember exactly which country, they seem to be uh, making really uh, yes, good case. Yeah, in, yeah. In, in, in the whole uh, cashless society. So perhaps I feel like Sweden is, is a good example that we can learn what are the steps that are necessary that we need to take to be able to move forward. Because otherwise, the government is not trying to make a stand. It just never be possible to be able to move towards that destination of the whole cashless society and economy. Yeah, I, I'm no expert in this area, and I because it um, you know it gets into the issues to do with banking and uh, overseas movement of, of uh, transactions, you know, and there are areas that I don't have any uh, expertise. So I'd be um, I'll be speaking from ignorance rather than from having you know, knowledge of those issues, but it's not going to be an easy um, transition in the sense that it's not going to be one without pain, but I honestly believe it's going to come, and it's probably going to come sooner rather than later, but I honestly couldn't be, uh, can't give a date or a time how long it'll take to happen. I think the banks will be uh, will play a role because... Um, it's already evident that the, uh, from what I hear from other sources, that usage of ATMs is on the decline, that people are more and more moving to using credit cards and uh, debit cards for transactions, and uh, especially the younger generation. Like, you know, I'm just watching my two sons, and they're very much at the forefront of using all the latest and greatest ways of uh, doing, you know, what we could call commerce, you know, online commerce mm. and I think what's what probably holding us back and I'm not being critical here it's just a, a generation issue that the older generation are not as technically or computer savvy as our younger generation mm. and we've got to cater for both we've got no choice on that but as the um, older generation decline in numbers uh, I think that'll accelerate the move to a cashless society and it's inevitable in my opinion. A few legislative changes will probably be required because if the governments don't take the right measures then people could be paying very hefty fees mm. for for uh, cashless transactions and I'm led to believe and you may have better knowledge than me here of this issue that cashless transactions cost banks virtually nothing compared to um, other types of transactions. So um, it's obviously scope there to reduce, you know, the fees and charges without him, without necessarily uh, causing um, a great um, problem to, um, you know, profits, etc. Mm. Uh, but you know, again, I'm I'm not the best person to speak about this because I'm, I'm the first to put my hand up and say, you know, my knowledge of this these issues is um, very superficial. No problem at all. I think it's still good to hear uh, what is your thought from the uh, ATO perspective or in terms of the revenue collection and how that whole movement to the cashless society will make such a big, massive impact to the revenue collected by the government and the more revenue they collected by the government without having to penalize the population with a higher percentage of the tax. I think it would just do good for, for the country and the population. I want to come back to the customer analogy works that you, you mentioned earlier. And I know you have an interest in the digital profiling. Are they the similar type of thing or are they the same thing? 
They've, they're um, like a, a complementary, or yeah, they are. They call it profiling is more about individuals, and when I use the word digital profiling, I'm talking about it used in a very uh, or a number of specific ways. And I'll give you an example of it. You know, if you're trying to identify people who are going to be a security risk, whether it don't matter which where they work, you know, it doesn't have to be the HR, it could be anywhere. Digital profiling allows you to go in and attempt to identify what would make those people visible in data. And it's about finding defining attributes that make them visible, behaviours, and what I call proxy measures, or proxy indicators is probably a better way of phrasing it. By proxy indicator, and this is a field that's very much at an early stage in its development, but it's going to mushroom because... And it's probably going to require some legislative protection as well because it could soon spiral out of control if, if uh, legislative sort of protections aren't put in place. But what I'm getting at is there are indirect indicators that can be found to be statistically associated with certain types of practices, certain types of behaviours. And I'll use a fairly uh, innocuous example here. If we knew what TV programs you're watching, what books you read, there's mm. a fair chance we could infer which political party you vote for. Yep. You wouldn't have to tell us. We would just know by the pattern of what you read and what you watch on television as to which way you're likely to lean. That doesn't mean we could predict who you're going to vote for in each election. It just means we know which way you're more more inclined to vote rather than will vote because, you know, there could be various issues arise that could swing people's votes from one direction to another. But we know who would be a safe driver from what they watch and what they read. We know who would be a risk of not repaying their loan. If we knew their, uh, what their proxy indicators, there's re research being done on mobile phone usage where they found that depending on how you use your mobile phone, it can give a very strong indication whether or not you're likely to be a good at repaying your loans or your debts versus someone who won't. And I see this as being a, a new and uh, exciting field. I, I, what I've been focused on is not so much doing the profiling yet as just getting the tools and techniques to do it. And we're getting um, to a point now where we've got those tools and techniques. I'm talking yeah, from a a um, data science point of view but uh, you know you've got the major um, internet service providers like Facebook and uh, Google etc and you know they're profiling us 24-7 by the way we use our um, those services provided by those service providers and I notice with one particular service provider I use not one of the ones I've mentioned already but they customise the material I see based on they, what they know about me as an individual and my interests, and they're pretty accurate in what they provide me because they've got my interests down pretty well. They've got a very accurate uh, understanding of my interests, I guess is the best way of putting it. Hmm. And they're not doing anything nefarious or unacceptable. They're, they're just like any good service provider. They're just understanding their customer and providing what the customer wants. Correct, correct. Yeah. Do you think this digital profiling is something that can be used within the ATO for whether it's revenue collection or whether it's the Black Economy Task Force? 
in better understanding who the people are and make them visible in the data and hence improve the quality of the outcome? You know, um, I'd have to say yes because um, it's a much bigger issue than just people's tax obligations. Uh, you know, I can see it being used to um, identify those who are likely to breach court orders when it comes to um, husbands estranged from their wives. You know, we've had some here in Canberra, you know, um, I think there's been two really shocking cases of where the wives were murdered by their estranged husbands. And I believe we could do a better job with the technology we've got now. And I'm not criticising the police in any way, shape or form. They're trying to do the best with what they've got. But I believe the technology is getting point now where we can be more certain about who's likely to breach those orders and to ensure that they are monitored more closely than those who are, say, a lower risk of doing it. When it comes to, um, like I said, people who could be security risks, I believe we're getting to a point now where we can identify them with far greater um, precision than what we've been able to do in the past. When it comes to, um, to another example, say people who are insurance risks, we can do it. I can see, you know, I can see it being, you know, um, used right across the board. Say with education, I mean, this is already happening in education. Unknown to a lot of people, you know, they're already not so much profiling students, but they're being able to um, predict now who's going to do well, who's not going to do well on courses. They can um, identify in what areas they need assistance uh, when it comes to uh, the learning and development that occurs. It's just becoming uh, a much more sophisticated world that we're living in and the biggest uh, challenge is keeping up with what's happening rather than what is happening because uh, it's just going with, uh, forward with such speed and it, you know, it's, the velocity is un, un, unreal. Mm. Yeah, I, I can see it being used universally across the board for virtually everything you'd care to name, you know, like, mm. you know, who's going to be a good profitable customer for a supermarket chain or a bank, that's already happening. I mean, that's not new. Correct. Uh, just be used in such many different and diverse sorts of ways. But coming back again, you know, I really believe the legislation's got to catch up with this because the Cambridge Analytica Facebook sort of scandal mm. where people's data was used without their permission just brought home how we need to have, you know, the right... Uh, what do you call it, protections in place to ensure that people's uh, data is not being used in a way it was never intended and it's going to be detrimental or harmful for them for the wrong reasons. I mean, in some cases it might be harmful for them for the right reasons in the sense it's going to protect uh, the broader community from those who would do us harm, like terrorists, is another example. But yeah, just ensuring that you know we all play by the rules and the rules are are fairly uh, clearly defined and don't leave anyone in doubt as to what can be done and can't be done because in government we have to play by the rules. Uh, if we don't, it undermines the community's confidence in government and no government, when it comes uh, to the political side of the fence they come from, wants the government, to, uh, you know, confidence in the government to be undermined in any way, shape or form. They want the opposite to happen to people believe in and trust and will support government and what it does. Yep. While we are on this topic of digital profiling, 
want to move the topic to a bit of a overlap in uh, about psychology. I know you have an academic background in psychology and also you play a controlling role in the psychology board of Australia. I suppose my question to you is, and also before I say that, my question is, I, I always think that a lot of things that we do are fundamentally driven by the psychology and driven by the human. And it's important to understand why and what is driving them to make that sort of decision and behave in certain way. So I suppose the question that I have that brings me the question is, how important do you think that the analytic profession, uh, they should take into the account of the human behavior or anyone whenever they are solving any problem using data and analytics? You know, you happen to be talking to a person who's a firm advocate of using what's called psychographic data, but and I don't know if you're familiar with that term, psychographic. It's commonly used in the marketing world. Yeah. And, you know, they, they've been uh, users of that type of data now for a long time. Mm. And, you know, they use it to understand the different type of customers out there in the population and um, have used it quite successfully. But I, I believe, um, you know, uh, listening, coming back to Ian Opperman yesterday when he's talking about going on the New South Wales government and Ian's a very good speaker and and has a very uh, you know it's a very dynamic um, data scientist in terms of what's being done in government in New South Wales but you know the way he was talking about joining a data and how they can use it for many important purposes like they're talking about I've got the term jargonish term he uses but basically kids who from broken families and you know they're fostered out to other families to be looked after and how you know they're trying to get that right so that you know, you know these kids aren't abused and missed and um, subjected to violence and other things when they're, they're um, put in foster homes and I think every government in Australia no matter which level you're talking about would love to have a system that can reduce the risk of that happening when it comes to those sorts of issues and to me, the more we can join data, the more we're going to see because you know it's becoming a truism in data science that the more you enrich your data, the more you see. And to me, adding psychographic data into that mix is going to uh, make the data even more richer than what it probably is uh, with the other data that's joined. And mm. it's just going to make you see things that previously you're blind to. And I've had a lot, lot of experience using psychographic data, not from a marketing sense, more from the sense of um, knowing what it can do and can't do when it comes to uh, psychological profiling. Mm. And I know for sure that we'll be able to make far better predictions about who would be an observant uh, or what you call a dutiful taxpayer compared to one who's not likely to be dutiful. We'd be able, we'd be able to do it with far greater precision than what we can do now We'd also know uh, which taxpayers are going to have problems, not because they're not dutiful, but just because of other reasons. Uh, you know, they're reaching a certain point in their life where they're going to have a change in circumstances so we can hop in before they reach that so that turning point and help them to make that transition and also ensure that they're not going to do something which is going to cause problems for them further down track where they've got to, say, repay taxes that they should have paid because not because they tried to avoid or evade paying those taxes. They just didn't realise they had that obligation. And our aim is to prevent rather than cure, like, mm. like most organisations have that sort of uh, approach. 
and the more we can prevent, then you know everyone's happier as a consequence. So yeah, I, I believe we've got to see this as a process where we're joining all data that we can legally do to join, and psychographic being part of that, but also a lot of other type of data as well, so that we get a, a richer and a better understanding of of the people we serve. So yeah, I'm a firm advocate of it, but there are many, many um, problems at present getting hold of that data. I won't go into them. They're far too many, but I can't see us using it for some time yet because I think some of the legislative issues are probably going to have to be addressed first. And also uh, there's just problems, difficulties getting the data using existing sources. And one thing I haven't mentioned, which you may be aware of, is the technology again is getting moving with such velocity that we can't keep up with it. But we can actually tell from what people say and write now what their personality is, what interests they may have, what their attitudes are, what their intentions may be. And it's just simply by having the technology to uh, analyse what they write, say, in emails, what they put in tweets, what they put in Facebook entries, what they put in, uh, say, presentations. They do what documents they write. That technology is already here. It's not futuristic. It just hasn't got a wide adoption yet, it will increasingly be adopted and be used, I expect, in the next decade or so, the uptake will increase quite dramatically. But again, you know, we've got this problem, the legislation's got to catch up as well, where the technology's at. Yeah, I think from the data scientist perspective or from the analytic perspective is, if we can set aside the privacy issue, if we can set aside the registration issue for one second, the more data that we can collect and join together, the better it is. And I suppose the challenge that I I feel like the policymaker will have to face over the coming years is how do they make that balance in uh, giving enough space for people to collect and use and join the data, but at the same time, protecting people and protecting how the, the data are being misused uh, in the case like the Cambridge Analytics. And that fine line and that balance is going to be really hard. I'm not sure what, what is the best way to do it. I, I suppose maybe perhaps the best way, I'm guessing as, as we see, is that the best way to do it is they probably just need to have more of the uh, analytic professional like you in the government to help them, guiding them in making the right decision to that that is balanced while not over uh, restricting the use of the uh, the data well the Cambridge Analytica um, and Facebook issue um, uh, was like a um, bombshell that in terms of its consequences and I'm talking right across the globe not just here in yeah. Australia yeah. in that it really brought to the surface you know um, how important it is to put in place the right protections and I know, you know, I can speak for the federal government because I'm, I'm involved in some of the discussions. You know, um, there is a really concerted effort being made now to come up with, A, a set of ethics, you know, like the medical profession has a code of ethics, the legal profession has a code of ethics. They're aiming to come up with code of ethics and they're well advanced in doing this for those who practice in the analytics space. The confidentiality, the uh, privacy, the um, security issues with data is certainly being addressed and progress is being made. 
and there's probably at some point, I don't know when this is going to happen, but I'd, I'd say it's not too far away if I had to make an educated guess when legislation will be introduced to Parliament to um, affect some of the changes that have been recommended by these various bodies. And these bodies aren't just made up of people from one department. They're made up from representatives across many departments and agencies that will be put to government and government will make the decisions on what they will legislate, what they won't legislate. But you can bet your bottom dollar that they're going to uh, be putting in some protections. They're not going to be uh, not doing nothing. But one of the cornerstone issues, and I've heard this from others, so this is not coming from me, but it's going to be this really ticklish question about who owns the data. Mm. Because um, there are some people, and these people are in the data science space, who believe quite emphatically that the person that data refers to should be the owner of the data, not the person who um, who produced the data. I know that's going to create all sorts of arguments for and against that that particular point of view, but at some point, who owns the data is going to have to be addressed as well, because um, that, to me, is really going to be one of the key issues that decides how data is used in the future. Right, yeah. It seems like that has been uh, a lot of uh, work being done uh, in the background at the federal level to understand, to regulate how the analytic professional uh, will be using this data and uh, making sure protecting the citizen from the misuse of the data. So that, that's really great to hear. I actually wasn't expecting uh, this will come out. I... That to bring to me, I suppose, the last question I have is, uh, it seems like that has been some major recognition that uh, by the federal government um, that data and the digital is going to play a big, massive role in the coming for, uh, in the future. And uh, they are trying to their absolutely best to use this data to play a role in the policy making. Is that a fair way to, to say that? It is. Um, the current government, you know, not, I'm keeping politics out of this, so anything I say yep. is not going to be politically motivated. But, yeah, and they, they, they've recognised that data is going to play a, a key role going forward. I think where we're uh, probably lagging behind a little bit, say, the state governments, and I, I assume other government, state governments like Victoria and Queensland, just as two examples, are probably uh, trying to catch up as fast as they can with New South New South Wales and the way they're using data, we are not as advanced as the state government, particularly New South Wales. New South Wales, the way it's using data, we've, um, we're, uh, you know, we've got some catching up to do, to be honest. But mm. um, that'll that will happen. I'm not uh, trying to be pessimistic about it. Mm. But I really think we've got to um, probably, uh, you know, I'm giving an opinion here, so don't take this as any, uh, as a statement of fact. Yeah, yeah. I really believe the government's going to have to address whether or not it goes towards establishing what I call a data fusion centre. That is a centralised data fusion centre that uh, services all government agencies and departments, but this centre would be the one that basically collects, joins, cleans and uh, makes certain the data is curated. And that would be all data, you know, data that those behind what I call the Chinese wall, and I don't mean China when I mean the Chinese wall, I'm talking about those who are, you know, 
I can't speak about what they do. I'm not allowed to, but but I know um, you know there's certain agencies that have significant powers when it comes to data, and they use it for all different purposes. But I I honestly believe we we need that central fusion capability to do it because I think that's the only way you're going to get economy of scale. Mm. Um, and that is not on the radar at present. But I have spoken to other people in other parts of the bureaucracy and. I haven't heard anyone yet, you know, disagree with that point of view. And uh, I'm not saying there aren't people out there who don't disagree. There probably are. But I just honestly believe that that's an issue that the government at some point in the future is going to have to address. I believe that um, while we've got the Bureau of Statistics, which performs a very important role, that either that agency or another agency will have to be put together to um, basically uh, serve the government. I'm not talking about taxation here or, say, human services or what are they called now, Service Australia. I'm talking about an, an agency that basically digs the eyes out of the data for the, the government itself on all issues and gives the government insights that will help guide both uh, policy making and the programs and the even the way portfolios are organised as well. You know, when I'm in a, when I use the word portfolio, I'm talking about health, I'm talking about defence, I'm talking about education as yep. portfolios. The, the programs within those portfolios, how they are managed, because uh, I reckon if they started getting a holistic view of a lot of these issues rather than, say, a departmental view, and again, mm-hmm. I don't mean that in a political sense, I mean that in the sense that portfolio obviously going to, give a portfolio view because that's what, what it deals with, that they'll then be able to make better decisions about how they want to service the population, what services are provided, and also um, where they're going to get the best bang for the dollar mm. in terms of um, the money spent because at present, you know, a lot of it's guesswork, some of it's not, but they don't always know for sure where they're going to get... Um, a really good return for the money that they do spend and uh, getting on top of that I think would be to er- everyone to benefit and I believe either the Australian Bureau of Statistics or in an expanded sort of form or another agency is needed to do that for government. It's not happening yet but that's just my personal opinion. Yeah and I think when you were talking about that whole central repository where we can pull all the data from different departments so that people will be able to access and use the data in more of the holistic view. I actually think that Queensland government is actually, is actually making a, a good progress. Um, so they currently have an initiative of trying to bring all the departments together, all the departments of the Queensland government together to share some of the works that they do and uh, also the data that they, they use in the view, in the hope that people will be able to be more analytic and uh, better use the data uh, across department uh, rather than just duplicate, but also uh, getting that holistic view. So I think the Queensland uh, government actually is doing a pretty good job. It might take some time to get there, but uh, I, I feel like they are absolutely heading to the right direction. Yeah, I get that impression from where, where I sit too, and your knowledge is better than mine. But, you know, bits and pieces I hear coming out of Queensland suggest to me that they've certainly got the right approach here. And uh, 
there's a friend of mine, um, I'm trying to think of his name, he was the chief information officer of the Queensland okay. government. He might, if he's still there, he might be one of those leading the charge on that. Yeah. Uh, he might have retired by now, but he uh, he and I uh, worked together many years ago. Yep. And um, oh, he's a good thinker. He's a positive sort of person. I always have a lot of time for him. And <laughs> I think the state governments are really embarrassing the federal government at present with the progress they're making on use of data <laughs> and analytics. <laughs> In that case, maybe they, they deserve to get more funding from, from the federal government to have them uh, advancing the, the use of the data and analytics, and uh, perhaps they can come back to have the federal government uh, to do some of those work. <laughs> oh, we'll catch up because everyone copies everyone else, and once our political masters here realise that maybe Government X is way out in front of uh, the federal government, I think that'll be the, you know, the uh, what do you call it, the cue for them to um, ensure that we catch up with the uh, re-election of the Morrison government. You know, uh, they made the decision to change the name of the Department of Human Services to Services Australia, and that was based on the New South Wales model of mm. they're using. So, you know, it's an example of where we are following what the states are doing. Mm. I'm going to try to end this interview by asking you one last question. What is your favourite book for the last 12 to 34 months? Oh... Um, one I really enjoyed reading and it was a very good book was the one by the two MIT academics and I think they're economists on the second machine age. I, I really enjoyed that book. It was a very good piece of scholarship. Eric, uh, I can't pronounce his name. He's got a European name, Brill Jofferson, something like that. And Andrew McAfee was the other author. And I, I really found that book very informative very forward thinking and, you know, really a, a, a signature book about where we're going with uh, technology and because they call what we live in now the second machine age or the fourth industrial revolution, depending on which term you prefer to use. And to me, uh, that was, um, you know, for all the books I've read, that was a really, uh, you know, a book I got a great deal of enjoyment out of reading. Great. I uh, haven't heard of that book before. I'm, I'm going to check that book out. I'm due for another new book. I just finished uh, uh, one. So uh, that's, uh, that's a great book. Thanks for sharing. So um, thank you so much, Warwick, for uh, coming to the show and uh, sharing some of the works that you do at the uh, federal level for the ATO, for the Medicare Australia, and also the Defense Department of Australia. I uh, just couldn't thank you enough for all the contribution that you have made for the country. So uh, I really, really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very okay. much. That's all right. Thanks a lot. And uh, if you want further assistance or help or anything, just give us a hoi.